Today's passage is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 through 11. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with the spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse come in a knob to Ahimelech the son of Itub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Itub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. Uh, this is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Ben, for the reading. Saul was really whining in that passage. I don't know if you noticed that. We'll talk a little bit about that. So good morning, Arcadia. My name is uh, Frank. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Arcadia. If you're new, we are glad you're here and we welcome you. Uh, just so that you know, when I say one of the pastors, uh, we have four pastors on staff here. We have a pastoral resident as well. Uh, and then we have a, a bunch of other people who are on staff that are really helpful and terrific. Uh, it's it's uh, great to be a part of this uh, community. Uh, I want to review a little bit, and then there's going to be a lot of summary today in our message because we're covering a number of chapters, but we're going to zero in on chapter 22, which is what Ben read from today. Uh, we've been in this series called We Want a King since July 3rd, and it's going to take us right up until Advent, and then we're going to do Advent after this uh, series. And, and the premise of the We Want a King is the people came to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 and said, we're done with how God has arranged uh, the nation of his people. We don't like the prophets. It seems like there's a lot of um, corruption, a lot of deceit, a lot of problems, a lot of, a lot of God's leaders working really only for themselves and their own benefit. And so uh, our answer to that problem is to uh, have a king lead us because obviously a king would never be susceptible to corruption or issues or sin or problem, you know. So that would be their answer. And, and so we're looking at Saul, David, and Solomon over these 22 weeks, probably the three most famous and well-known of the kings and arguably uh, in many ways the three best kings and we find that even those kings, the best kings, have all kinds of issues. Uh, they all seem to start well, but then all seem to fall prey to their privilege and the power that they have, and that becomes a huge challenge. And we're already, we've already seen that with Saul. Saul is on his way out. David is on his way in. We've transitioned into talking more about uh, David than Saul, although today is going to be, again, we're going to kind of regress and go back primarily about Saul because it's about Saul doing one of the most heinous things that you find in the Old Testament today. So let me give you a preview of the next three weeks that we're going to be looking at. Today, we're going to summarize, review chapters 18 through 20 of 1 Samuel, 
And then we'll focus on chapter 22. So what's happening is that David is in exile from Saul. David had some great victories and a great start with Saul, but then Saul doesn't like him, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, And today what happens in in the meantime is that Saul gets paranoid and frustrated, and then, as I said, he commits one of the most grievous acts that we find in Scripture. Next week, David is still in exile, but we get to look at the narrative that talks about how David is given the perfect opportunity to assassinate Saul and eliminate his pursuer, eliminate his political foe, eliminate his, quote, problem, But instead, he chooses to spare Saul's life and then has a very interesting conversation with Saul about that. And then on Labor Day Sunday, David becomes the king. But interestingly enough, even though God had anointed this, David's transition into his reign was anything but smooth. It was violent and it took, there was a a divided kingdom, a smallly divided kingdom for a while. And it took seven years for David to actually ascend to the throne over all of God's people. And we'll look at that on Labor Day Sunday. So last week, what we looked at, David, who's the anointed king, next after Saul. And we talked about that tension that, you know, God could have done this any number of ways. Instead, he chose to allow the people, and especially Saul and David, to have to live in this tension. Saul being the king, and still the king... God's first anointed, but now God has removed his favor from Saul, and he's already anointed David as the next king, and the two of them are living in these two liminal spaces, spaces where they know that that's not ultimately where they're going to be, and it happens, and it goes on for years and years and years, and if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Trey taught that unlike us, God is comfortable with that tension and understands that you and I can learn all kinds of things in the midst of tension, but you and I don't like tension. In fact, we spend most of our life trying to eliminate tension and discomfort from our life, and God says maybe that's where you can grow the most, is in the midst of that tension and discomfort. So David's the next anointed king. He unexpectedly, last week we talked about this, he goes to the front of a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines where Goliath, the giant, is taunting the Israelites, and King Saul is very much afraid. So David takes on Goliath. He kills him. He delivers Goliath's head to Saul, and David is a hero. Saul asks to be introduced to David in the two talk, and it's all very nice and cozy. But then three things happen that will drive Saul absolutely bananas because he's an insecure guy. Number one, Jonathan, who is Saul's favored son, becomes very good friends with David. Second of all, David is sent out by Saul to lead the Israelites in battles against many of Israel's enemies, and David becomes the most successful military leader in Israel's history, which kind of bothers Saul. But then, third, we have what I would call an inciting incident. Not an exciting incident, but an inciting incident. And that's in chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. After all of these victories and after the victory over Goliath, here's what happens. Verse 6 in chapter 18. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. This upset Saul, 
because he's got a problem with pride and insecurity and envy, all of that. And this becomes essentially Saul's Achilles heel. And his Achilles heel has four parts. Pride, envy, insecurity, and impulsiveness or impetuousness, either one. And, and really, they're all related to each other. It's, it's, it's interesting how pride can lead to insecurity, how insecurity leads to envy, how impulsiveness is often the response to any of these characteristics in our lives. And so this becomes Saul's Achilles heel. It's a package deal for his character. And Saul's insecurity meant that he had no ability to celebrate the accomplishments of others. Saul's insecurity meant that he had no ability to celebrate the accomplishments of others. I want you to hear this. If you get nothing else out of today, this could be the most important thing in practical application you get. Accomplishments of others will diminish only you when you whine about them. When you whine about the accomplishments of others, the accomplishment and that other person is not being diminished, but rather you are. That's something to put into our little box and just lock it up and use it later on when we feel that need. Scripture talks about, you look through especially the New Testament, Scripture often talks about how in our faith communities and with other people that we're living with and working with, our first flinch should be rejoice with others and encourage one another and that instead trying to elevate ourselves by denigrating others and their accomplishments, that's just foolishness and self-defeating. And this is exactly what Saul leans into time after time after time. Every time we read that Saul is angry with David or jealous of David or wants David kill, killed, all it does is diminish Saul. When we think of Saul, just in general, we think of King Saul, we think of the guy that just couldn't handle David being around, and, and that was really sad. We also find out three more important details in chapter 18. First of all, we're reminded... Again, that the Lord removes his hand of provision and protection from Saul and places it on David. And the funny thing is, is that Saul knew this, and it was Saul's fault, and Saul knew that it was Saul's fault, and yet Saul refused to do anything to correct it. He's, he's that classic definition of insanity. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, but expecting different and better results. And he's, he's a classic definition of that. Second of all, Saul gives one of his daughters woman named Michael, to David for marriage. She becomes the first of David's eight wives. Yes, eight wives at the same time. We don't often think about, we think about David and Bathsheba and the adultery and the murder of her husband Uriah. We think about that. We don't realize that at one time David had accumulated for himself eight wives. And so we need to remember that as, uh, although David is a man described in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart, he's widely regarded and celebrated as the very best king of, of Israel in the history of Israel. David had issues. Can I? Yeah, thank you. Somebody. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Alan. I appreciate that. Okay. And then number three, Saul wants David dead, but tries to do it in a really clever manner, which ironically he fails at. Well, now, why ironically? I'll get to that in a second. Let me tell you what happens. So Saul tells David that in order to marry his daughter, Michael, he had to go into battle again against the Philistines and bring him 100 foreskins from 100 dead Philistine soldiers. Now, how many of you would say that's the strangest dowry in the history of humankind? Okay, that's very strange. Okay, I'm just looking for like 50 grand for my daughters, okay. <laughs> anyway, 
Saul, the reason Saul does this is Saul never expected David to be able to defeat 100 Philistines and take their foreskins and bring them back. He, he thought that he was sending David into sure death. This is my way of getting rid of David without anybody knowing that I'm trying to kill David. But David goes out and, and he doubles down. He brings back 200 foreskins. So here's the irony. On Sunday, September 25th, in our message that day, we're going to see that this is exactly how David gets rid of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So apparently David went to school on this idea, only he was successful at it. And some of you thought reading the Old Testament was boring. <laughs> and by the way, let me just say this. This is why it's so important to read the Old Testament history books in large blocks. Read them broadly. Read, just read chapter after chapter after chapter because uh, unlike the way we tend to read the New Testament letters where we just read it a paragraph at a time or a chapter at a time, which still isn't quite the way we should necessarily be reading it, but unlike those books in the New Testament, there are things happening in 1 Samuel that have tremendous repercussions in 2 Samuel. There are things happening in 1 and 2 Samuel that have tremendous repercussions in 1 and 2 Kings. And when you read broadly and deeply in the Old Testament historical books, you begin to make these connections. And you begin to understand how all of this just fits together. And that God is sovereign and he's in control of all of this. And it's really a beautiful thing. So, chapter 19. Saul continues his quest against David, but now it's more direct. Saul even tells his son Jonathan, David's best friend, that he intends to kill David. So Jonathan goes to bat for David. He tells his father that David has done nothing but good things for Saul. He has served Saul. He is winning battles on behalf of Israel and giving Saul the credit. He's, he's, he's taking no credit for anything that David is doing, giving it all to Saul. But this is part of Saul's insecurity and pride. He really had no reason to fear David. David had done nothing but serve Saul with great joy. Here you go. You note takers, write this down again. This was all in Saul's head. It's all in his head. He's making this stuff up. He's not looking at the reality of what's happening and coming to the right conclusion. He's looking at what's happening and only seeing it as a threat to him. That's the only lens through which he can see anybody else's life, a threat to him. But Saul listens in this moment to Jonathan, and he relents at least for a minute. And Jonathan tells David he doesn't have to worry anymore. So then David goes out and wins more wars impressively, and then Saul loses his mind again over David. And so back in the palace, Saul throws a spear at David, but he misses. So David runs home. He thinks by going home, Saul will cool down. But then when he gets there, his wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, tells David, you need to get out of here. My dad's serious. He's going to come for you. You need to leave. And she's right. Saul sends men to their house to take David away and kill him. But Michael tricks the men, which in effect means that she deceives, deceives her father. So now in Saul's mind, this is how he's organizing his thoughts now. In his mind... He's got David, who's the king in waiting, thinking that David is against him just for that reason. And now he's got his number one son and his daughter ostensibly working against him. So they formed this little, this little cabal working against Saul. That's the way he sees this. So he's really freaked out. And yet all three of them are only trying to do what's best for Saul. Here you go, a couple of rhetorical questions. Do any of you have someone in your life who's just trying to help you, just trying to serve you, 
and you're mad at them for some reason? Or maybe it's the other way around. You're just trying to serve somebody. You're just trying to help somebody, and they're treating you like an enemy. I mean, this, this happens. Anyway, David leads, ta- leaves town. He heads up to Samuel's town. Samuel's still alive at this point. He hangs out with him for a little while, but he's in exile now. And Saul sends his men after, uh, his men after David up there to see if they can find him. So in chapter 20, David tries again to tr- come back and serve Saul, and he talks to Jonathan about it first. The two of them work out a plan to see if Saul still wants to kill David. And Saul is still mad at David, wants him dead. In fact, he's so mad at David that Saul even tries to kill Jonathan, his own son, for being in cahoots with him, ostensibly. Anyway, Jonathan and David work out a secret coded plan for Jonathan to tell David whether it was thumbs up or thumbs down, and it's thumbs down, so David flees to exile again. And I want you to remember, David has done nothing to deserve this, and yet Saul persists. Only now, David starts to have people join him. Now, this is interesting. David didn't go out and recruit anybody. David did not go out and recruit an army. But rather, there were men who began to see how Saul was behaving, and they began to think, I don't think I can follow this guy anymore. I think I'm going to go and be with David. So they willingly left their homes and went into exile with David. And eventually, David's got 600 men who are uh, not against Saul. They're just in David's camp, living in exile, trying not to mess with Saul, just leaving him alone, trying not to mess with Saul. So in chapter 21... David is so desperate to escape Saul that he even, irony, he even travels to Philistia to see the king of the Philistines in order to get help and support from the king of Philistia. So David killed the greatest Philistine who ever lived, and Philistia was was the mortal enemy of Israel. This is how weird all of this gets. And so we get to chapter 22, and David has now gathered quite an army, again, This army was never for the purposes of attacking Saul and his armies. It was just a community of hundreds who were on the run from Saul, thinking that Saul was no longer a leader to be followed. But also, ironically, this band of 600 under David were still fighting battles and wars against Israel's enemies on behalf of Saul, even as Saul is chasing David, trying to kill him. It's an amazing thing that's going on. And Saul's anger and focus on David drives Saul, first of all, to not pay attention to what was really important in leading his nation, but rather drives him to do one of the most horrendous things that we see in the Bible. So I want to reread those three of those verses, the first three verses that Ben read for us. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on on the height of his spear, on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, David, give, every, give to every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Are you going to accept this bribe from David that's only in Saul's mind. David's not bribing anybody. He's not promising anybody anything, but it's all in Saul's mind that this is how David is getting people to to come with him. That all of you have conspired against me? They're standing there with him, serving him, protecting him, and he's accusing them of conspiring with David. 
No one discloses to me when my, my son, Jonathan, makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant, David, against me to lie in wait as at this day. David's not lying in wait. He's just leaving him alone. That's all he's doing. Saul is quite paranoid and is driven by his insecurity. He's talking nonsense. He's accusing the very people who are with him and for him of doing all these terrible things. But it gets worse. It gets way worse. As Ben read, Doeg, this Edomite, who happened to be around in chapter 21 when David went to the priests at Nob, Ahimelech, and asked for some sustenance for his men, and he got some bread, and he got, he got the sword of Goliath. That's all the guy did for him. That's all uh, uh, um, Ahimelech did for him. Well, Doeg saw this, and now he's with Saul, and so he goes and he tells Saul, I know where David is. I have David's plans. I was with him when he went to Nob. Okay? So by telling Saul this, all Doeg does is get a bunch of innocent people killed. So look at verses 11 through 19. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of the Lord for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait uh, as, as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king. And I want you to understand, Ahimelech's answer to Saul is very similar, if not exactly the same, as Jonathan's pleas on, a, on behalf of David to Saul. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not doing anything against you. This is all in your head, Saul. So Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? It's a rhetorical question. No one. No one is as faithful as David. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute. That word means, our current word would be project. Saul is projecting his own mind pathology onto Ahimelech. Saul is the one who has this problem. He's the one making all this stuff up, and so he projects it. He imputes it onto Ahimelech. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And here's the, king, the king's response. Here's what Saul says. You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to, uh, to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed them on that day, 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. So he killed 85 priests and, verse 19, and Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, and he put to the sword. So it wasn't just the 85 priests. He took out the entire city. And notice the language there. Again, 
Go back to when Tyler Thompson taught us about 1 Samuel chapter 15. That was exactly the, the instruction that God gave to Saul that Saul did not follow when it came to the Amalekites. Now Saul's willing to do it to his own people. Serious, serious issues with Saul here. And, and David's, David's doing nothing. He's just trying to get out of the way. Just trying to get out of the way. He's so insecure, his pride is so shaken that he kills all these people. He has all these people killed. And, and I want to point out also, look at all the chances that Saul had to gracefully back away from this. He had two huge chances to back away from this. Ahimelech, like Jonathan, explains to Saul that David is on Saul's side, that David has done nothing to deserve this animus. But here you go. This is what Saul feels. He, Ahimelech is speaking truth to Saul. He's speaking truth to somebody who has power who doesn't see it that way. So Saul invokes his power. The Old Testament caller D.F. Payne writes this, it is astonishing, it's a good word, astonishing, that Saul would massacre so many priests at such an important sanctuary, the city of Nob, despite the very reasonable defense made by Ahimelech. Shall I say it again? Envy, pride, insecurity, impulsiveness. And then the second time he has a chance, Saul's own men do the right thing thing and refused to kill the priests even though the king commanded it. So finally Saul gives the priest killing job to Doeg who is now in so deep that he has no choice but to follow through and do the dirty work. So here's how it ends and then I'm going to take some time to go through three points of application to help set us up for next week. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub named Abiathar escaped and fled after David and Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. <laughs> now look at that. David is bearing some responsibility for this. David didn't do anything wrong, but he's saying I'm partly responsible for this. I probably should have done something about Doeg. So he says to him, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life also seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. So in spite of all of this, David doesn't seek revenge. He could have. Instead, he takes some responsibility for what's happening. So three things to consider as we close out today's chapters. Uh, this first one's going to be the longest, and it's going to be a little bit on the nose. So hang in there with me. Uh, this first point of application is this. Speaking truth in our world today, just like back then, speaking truth in our world today will likely bring about some unpleasantness for you. We see clearly through Saul's reign that this is true. We see it in other Old Testament narratives about other people when truth is spoken to them. And we see it especially here and specifically here in chapter 22. Truth tends to anger people in power when they have the incorrect worldview. Truth takes apart worldviews that are built on fantasy, insufficient identities, and irrational suppositions, as so many worldviews today are built on. Truth almost always challenges the person who has succumbed to pride. And truth is often antithetical to the values embraced by a culture. So it takes humility to be able to sit under truth and allow it to change change your mind, change my mind, 
and to mold us toward wisdom. One of the great jobs of biblical truth is to mold us, help mold us toward godly wisdom. And I'll tell you, this is nothing new. It's been around a long time. So here you go, maybe a little contemporary application here. Saul has a problem with cognitive dissonance, okay? So the, the, the term cognitive dissonance coined uh, by Leon Fessinger. He's the father of cognitive dissonance. Go online, knock yourselves out, read all about it. It's really interesting stuff. But cognitive, meaning cognition or thought, dissonance meaning, con meaning conflict. When your mind has to engage with two different thoughts that you believe are true, but they are in opposition to each other, what does your mind do with that? What do you do when one truth is, is opposing or pushing back against another truth in your mind? We experience this all the time, all the time. What does our mind do with that? Well, three possible things. Number one, when we experience cognitive dissonance, we can deny the new factual information that is entering our brains. We can suppress it, and we can destroy anyone who believes it and pretend it doesn't exist. That's one response that we have to cognitive dissonance. We just deny that, that new fact that's entering our mind. The second thing we, we do is, is that we'll create a new narrative built around what we still believe is true, but in other words, it keeps our worldview intact, but it plausibly, in your mind anyway, it plausibly explains away or makes room for this new fact or truth. So it's a kind of a rearranging of our, our narrative that keeps the narrative intact, but, but allows for some reality there. The third response that we can have is to change our worldview because the new information is reality and we want to live in reality. So that's, that's the third one. That's the least common one, by the way. Okay. Anyway, which option does Saul choose? He chooses the first one, the most destructive one. And he goes all the way. He denies it. He kills people. He suppresses it. This is Romans chapter 1 where Paul writes about how the world suppresses the truth of God literally tries to hold it down. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to talk about how the picture there is like, if you've ever been to uh, the beach and you have a beach ball and you're trying to push the beach ball underneath the water and how it just keeps popping up, that's God's truth. It keeps popping up. You're never going to be able to suppress it forever. But we're trying. We're pushing. Saul's trying. He's pushing. You know? By the way, here are five truths that are rock many others' cognitive dissonance and maybe some of yours in here. But you should be careful with these truths because you could end up like the priests of Nob if you proclaim these truths, as I'm about to now. Or maybe metaphorically end up like them. And by the way, um, I had 150 of them, and I cut it down to five because I wanted to finish reasonably on time. Okay, here's the first one. There is a clearly defined... Biblical understanding of sexuality and gender. And it's clear. And, and I, know that, um, I know that that, just, just saying that can get, can get some people to come up to me and say, you are speaking oppressively, you are malignant. I've heard this term, you're malignant, okay, for saying such a thing, for just stating what the Bible says. Just stating that can get you into trouble about human sexuality, sexual orientation, and gender. It's, fa it's fascinating to me. 
we look at Romans 1, of course. We look at 1 Corinthians 6. We, we look at uh, Jude. We look at Leviticus. The interesting thing to me is that we look at all of those, but it really starts in Genesis chapter 1. That's where it starts. God is very clear about this in chapter 1. And, and here's the question. I, I, I understand if people don't believe the Bible. I get that. I'm okay with that. You know, I believe the Bible. I believe everything it says, even the stuff I don't like. I, I believe it. If you don't believe it, okay, I get that. I understand Maybe you're on a journey, maybe you're not, but, but I don't want to break fellowship with you. But it seems like everybody just wants to break fellowship over something like this. We can't even be friends. We can't even talk to you. Can't we just have a cookie together and talk about hockey? Can't we still be nice to each other? I, I don't get it. But really, here's what it boils down to, okay? Here's the question you should be asking yourself if you struggle with this. Not whether or not you believe the biblical stance on sexuality and gender. Not that. Here's the question you need to ask. Is Jesus resurrected? Is Jesus who he said he was and is, is he resurrected? Because if he is, this is his word and we follow it. So the question really becomes, what are you doing with the resurrection of Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Or are you sort of following him, and then when something's uncomfortable or you don't like it, or there's somebody in your life that, that pushes back against it, you say, ah, okay, that part I don't believe. Is Jesus raised from the dead? Here's the second one. Okay, now I'm going to get into somebody else's mess, okay? Printing money nonstop and exponentially expanding, expanding the national debt is going to end in disaster. Do you know that's a truth that gets you into trouble now today? Oh, Frank, you just don't understand economic theory. Okay, I majored in economics the first time through my college experience. I under, I'm sorry, I understand old economic theory. But here's the thing, old economic theory was based on math. This new economic theory is based on a math that says this, 2 plus 2 equals ice cream. <laughs> and and I, know, I know that's like that seems flippant, that seems silly, but essentially that's true. The math does not work. I, I said this to a couple people this week. Our, our household, if our monthly P&L, profit and loss statement, our financials, every month, if it looked like the federal government we would not only be thrown out of our house, but we'd be thrown in jail. We can't just print money in my house. Well, we could, but I'd get caught. We can't just expand exponentially our debt. I tried to get a loan on our house that has 90% equity in it, and they said no. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm not, I'm not coming after the government on this. I'm coming after the people who are believing this fantasy. Everything's going to be fine. Just going to be fine. Uh, let me just say this, and then I'll move on to some more comfortable things, maybe. <laughs> I read this about six years ago in a book. I loved it. Uh, the author wrote, Capitalism is the second most wicked and evil economic system in the history of the world. What's the question? Well, what's the worst? All the others tied for first. 
And this is not trying to elevate capitalism. What the, the point the author was making is that every economic system has people involved and people are sinful, and so there's going to be a problem with every economic system. There is no system that can make straight what God has made crooked. That's Ecclesiastes. And if you're putting your faith in some system, you're in trouble. So here's the third truth. The application of Marxism in society has always been evil. It's, here you go, the application, key word, the application of Marxism in society has always been evil. It's key word application. The idea of Marxism is great. I like it. It makes sense. It appeals to me. The problem is, is that the only people who have ever applied it have this problem with sin. And it's fascinating to me to hear people ostensibly say today, yeah, but I'm smarter than Stalin. I'm better than Mao. I can do this much better than Pol Pot. It'll be fine with me leading it. Run. Just run, okay? Here's the fourth one. Biblical tr Christianity is true. Just, try, just stand at 24th Street in Camelback and go, I just want you all to know biblical Christianity is true. See how long that lasts, okay? And by the way, yes, we have to use the modifier biblical because <laughs> it's amazing to me what some people think Christianity is anymore. So... Biblical Christianity is true. Here's the last one. Jesus is the only path to salvation, healing, and purpose. The only one. Oh, but Frank, there are many ways to God. There are many ideas of God. My idea of God is just as good as yours or the Bible's or anything else. Let's just move on. Here's the second thing. I want us to compare and contrast Saul's and David's traits. Saul was filled with pride, he was insecure, and he was impetuous. At this point in his life, David was humble, loyal, and patient. Saul was foolish and thoughtless. David was wise and faithful. Saul was hot-headed. David was contemplative. We'll see that next week again. Saul was paranoid. David was sober-minded. Now you know the drill. Which category do you want to fall in? Right? You know the drill. Well, we're called in the gospel to be more like David, to demonstrate our faith, our patience, our wisdom, God's wisdom. Saul is a, Saul is a really an excellent manifestation of Proverbs 18, 1 and 2. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. That's Saul in 1 Samuel 22, right there. Here's the last one. Notice that how, no matter how often Saul screws things up, he refuses. He refuses to rethink his approach. He stubbornly doubles down on what is not working. So I hear this argument all the time quite often, from people who always go back to their own ways of dealing with their problems and their hardships in life and the tribulation and the suffering. They keep going back to what they know, what they think they're doing. They just keep going back, but they refuse to entertain any idea that maybe God has something to say about it. Here's what they say. They argue that Jesus is secure and humble and calm and non-anxious. When you read about him in the New Testament, he's all those things. Because he's God. 
if I were God, I'd be just like Jesus. So they argue that he's God, and that's why he's so cool. But then in the next breath, they say this, but he can't help me. But he can't help me. It's so ironic. They admit that he's God, but somehow he can't help them. So why do they say that? Well, well here's why. Again, we're just stuck. We're, we're stuck in this rut. Many of us really believe that it's just too hard to follow Jesus. The truth is, it's a lot harder to follow ourselves. It's a lot harder to follow ourselves. Envy, pride, and insecurity are harsh taskmasters. And so what we need to remember, because the gospel is true, that we're sinners separated from God, nothing we can do about that on our own, but if we come to Jesus, who paid for our sin at the cross and gave us new life through the resurrection, if we do that, then we can do what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us, that we can boldly and with joy and confidence come to the throne of his grace and be fully embraced by God. And he will lead us, he will teach us, he will heal us, and he will help us to see reality. And he'll give us his wisdom. Amen. Our holy God, thank you for, well, it's hard to thank you for a narrative like this. But we see in it your truth and your wisdom. We see in it what happens when people rebel against your truth and wisdom. And so help us to be a people that is seeking after you. Help us to be a people that wants to know you. Help us to be a people that uh, lives in gratitude and thanksgiving because of what your son has done for us and not one that lives in envy or pride or insecurity or impulsiveness. Help us to do that. God, we pray that as your Holy Spirit fills us that we would welcome your spirit. That we would say that's a good thing and we want to be followed. We want to we follow the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives and that, and that what Paul says in Philippians that we are to have the mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, that, that the mind of Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit can lead us as we seek who you are. We seek to know you. This is the beginning of all wisdom. Thank you, God, for that, for that gift. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. So every week at about this time, we have a time of reflection time of response. If our communion servers would please come forward. Those of us who have proclaimed that we are followers of Jesus, we come forward now for the Lord's Supper for communion. This is something that Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed. Before he was betrayed, he's with his best friends. And he takes the Passover meal and he changes it to a meal about who he is the forgiveness that he gives us, the covenant that he has with us who come to him. He took the bread and he broke it. This is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come for this sacrament, we come confessing Jesus as Lord and celebrating that he is Lord, that God has given us a way. God has given us the way, and it's Jesus. 
So we're going to have a song while you're coming forward and taking communion. And as you return to your chair, as you feel led by the Spirit, you can start to stand and join in with that song and sing. And then we'll finish with one more song after that. And then Tyler will come and give us our benediction. So let's do that now.
Amen. Praise God. Thank you for being here together to worship the Lord together and to be a part of his body and fellowship with Christ and all the saints. Our benediction comes from 1 Thessalonians. Say that five times fast. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.